0: Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. the The disintegration of empire. ourselves awake hello I'm Michael Dowd host of post Doom regenerative Conversations exploring overshoot grief grounding and gratitude. In this conversation I speak with Laura Schmidt and Amy Lewis Rowe, the co-founders of the Good Grief Network. It was recorded in September of 2019. there's one preview, And we've titled this conversation, Good Grief. I highly recommend the Good Grief Network. Here's the preview.
1: As someone who had a lot of depression through my 20s, I needed to find a reason to live in this world that is so sick. And not only have I done that, I've found a level of joy that I feel like it is my duty, my obligation, and my honor to share with people. And that is why we are here. That is why we call it the Good Grief Network, because grief is the in to a deep level of connection that breeds deeper joy.
0: Yeah. Wow. Amen. God. (laughs) Oh, I feel the spirit.
1: (laughs) Yes. Thank you.
0: The conversation begins Laura, Amy, I'm just thrilled that you can be both a part of this because your good grief network is a vital resource for this entire community. And this entire conversation this post doom conversation. I want to jump in and just ask uh, each of you to uh, have us get you like help us, the people who aren't familiar with the good grief network, people who don't know who the two of you are, help us understand what you bring to the world and what you're passionate or concerned about these days.
2: All right, well first, Michael, thank you. Thank you for having us and thanks for giving us an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the Good Grief Network. Our format with Good Grief is a peer-to-peer support group. So the aim is smaller groups. Uh, We cap our groups at about 15 participants. And what ends up happening is we invite people to come and we have prompts, the steps act as prompts, we do one a week and it's the change that occurs from step one to step 10, there are no words for who I am. You know, it's always so hard to parse down a life story in, in a couple minutes, but uh, I have always been concerned about animals. That's my entry point into this work is uh, being concerned about species extinction and biodiversity. I majored in biology at Central Michigan University, and also environmental studies. And it was through that time that I first read the IPCC. It was back in 2009, and being a relatively smart person, I realized the implications of what the report was saying, and realized that no government was taking any of this seriously. And so, that I, I'd say probably 2009 was my first spark into what would be eco anxiety or climate grief, um, and just the the stirring inside and not knowing what to do about it because no one else is talking about it, Uh, no one else is doing anything about it. So my next few years were trying to position myself as a change maker, uh, whatever that meant, uh, whatever I was being called to do. And um, that ended up being a brief stint down in Chauvin, Louisiana uh, during the oil spill. It was, so that's what, 2010? Um, I lived in a little tiny bayou community down there and really saw firsthand the implications of our fossil fuel industries and what it does to these small communities, especially if something like a well blowout happens, you know, people can't fish and shrimp anymore, so all the food that they were gathering is no longer available. Um, if they weren't fishermen or shrimpers, then they were working in the fossil fuel industry and now there was a moratorium on drilling in the Gulf because of the oil spills. So I was down there in a community that was really impacted by all of this. In addition to that, they're sinking, that area down there is sinking. And so uh, it's really like firsthand experience right out of the textbook being placed into a community with real life people who are suffering and still realizing no one's taking it seriously. So my next move was to go to the University of Utah and study with Terry Tempest Williams in her environmental humanities program. Uh, this was the best decision I've ever made in my life and it started forming my question of how do we sustain people who want to look at these heart issues? How do we really um, protect their hearts and protect their minds and what I did was a, a series of interviews and read Uh, A lot of books, read a lot of research, um, both in science and psychology, and then ended up putting together what would become the 10-step program that we do now, but it was just very elementary at that point. Uh, Sort of just trying to put together patterns of what I was seeing, how people build resilience in their own life, how scientists, uh, communicators, teachers, activists, writers, what they were doing to sustain themselves. And so what we like to say in the Good Grief Network is that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. What we have done is taken a lot of information that's available to us and put it in a step form that gets people talking and gets people to the heart of the experience and to the heart of the problems and allowing us to start the conversation from there. Uh, so in short, that's sort of my story and the background of the Good Grief Network. Um, luckily, Amy was able to join up with me, and she she's very heart-centered, very emotions-based. Her experience and knowledge is very based in the emotional realm. And so she really has helped take the Good Grief Network to a, a platform it wouldn't have been without her. We added a 10th step, because when we first started, we were a nine-step program. And the 10th step is all about death anxiety and honoring our death and trying to understand how a species like ours, which is so brilliant uh, and we're born into this life, but yet ultimately it's finite. And how do we deal with that? Even before we start to look at things like the climate crisis and uh, the biodiversity breakdown, our own mortal life, how do we start to deal with that?
0: Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that because I, I agree that that is fundamental that you will not have the same relationship to reality. Um, especially the reality, the sides of reality, the parts of reality that are uncomfortable if you have not done the work around genuinely accepting the inevitability of death, the naturalness, the sacredness of death, yes. mortality, and and impermanence. So we'll we'll come back to that. So awesome. Amy, please.
1: So my, my background is quite a bit different, and it's why I like Laura to lead, because I did not plan to be a part of the environmental movement. That did not feel in the cards for me. My activism... Uh, was very human rights based. And um, we used to, I think we mentioned this before, but Laura and I, in our younger years, used to argue what what kind of activism is more important. And what I feel like has happened here is good grief is what happens when you get to the roots of some of these systemic problems, right? You start to realize that the same sort of disconnection from self from others, from the natural planet is what allows people to be so destructive, whether that's towards their fellow human beings or towards the natural world. And
0: Yeah. I'm, I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday where we were discussing how um, if you don't take a look at human supremacy, you can't really understand white supremacy or any other form of supremacy quite deep enough. Right. It's
2: true. It's true. You're absolutely
1: right. and. Uh, I was a I'm a writer. Uh, that's what I studied. I got an MFA in creative writing, and through things like poetry, fell in love with what where everything words can't say. And that path, I feel like, is what has really helped me bring a strength to good grief when it comes to being able to sit with uncomfortable emotions. And I am starting to embrace my sensitivity as a gift. And in doing that, am really, Feeling a new sense of confidence and power through facilitating our 10 step program and seeing what giving myself permission to be sensitive does for the folks in our group. And so I now feel like my human rights based activism was actually preparing me for this space that we are where environmental meets Humanities meets everything it's our our, everything is being threatened. Everything is up for collapse. And so what I want to know and as a poet. I want to find where the love comes into this where the meaning comes in because as someone who had a lot of depression through my 20s. I needed to find a reason to live in this world that is so sick. And not only have I done that, I've found a level of joy that I feel like it is my duty, my obligation, and my honor to share with people. And that is why we are here. That is why we call it the Good Grief Network, because grief is the in to a deep level of connection that breeds deeper joy.
0: Yeah. Wow. Amen. God. (laughs) Oh, I feel the spirit. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. (laughs) So I, I'm curious, how did the two of you meet and, and, you know, give me a sense or give us a sense to whatever degree you feel comfortable sharing it, like uh, your personal into each other and this work?
2: Yeah, well, it's actually a pretty funny story. So we met in undergrad. Amy was 20 uh, and I'm, I was 22. I had just turned 20 the, the day before I met her. <laughs> okay. And uh, long story short, we were forced into group work in a geology class and uh, Amy didn't actually like me then, which is really funny.
0: Oh, Um, that's not uncommon.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's funny is we lead groups, but I don't particularly like group work. So I think it was one of these things that I had to confront in myself and realize the power of group dynamics. And maybe an undergraduate course was not the right place to try to teach me that. Um, However, uh, Amy and I ended up going on a geology club trip from this class. They opened it up to non-majors and neither of us were geology majors. So we got to travel around the American and Southwest for a week, uh, really affordably, and that opened up for a lot of dialogue and a lot of heart-centered conversations. So from there, we were instant best friends, uh, pretty much inseparable, yeah. and uh, remained best friends for about nine years. And then Amy moved in with me after she graduated from her grad program because I was working at an environmental nonprofit in Salt Lake, and I was like, I have some money, I can float you for a while till you get on your feet. And about two months into that, Amy was like, Laura, I love you. I think we should be together. So that's kind of our story in short. Yeah, it's a much
1: simplified version. (laughs) And the funny aha moment I like to share is because both of us, uh, we were best friends for nine years. And people in the early days told us we should be in a relationship. And it just didn't feel right. And for good reason. We both had a lot of self-work to do. And uh, so we said, no, we only date men. It's not for us. And then I had this moment at the bar where I was planning my date with a guy around Laura's schedule, because if she was available, I wanted to be spending my time with her. (laughs) It was this like aha moment. And the world was never the same after, (laughs) after that moment. I just couldn't go back to, to trying to date and have this amazing relationship. I wanted it all. And uh, we balance each other out amazingly. And now that we're doing this work together, it, you you know it feels sacred if I can be yes. so honest to say so, but it there feels something really special and healing about it.
0: Yes, wow. Well, it is sacred, and the way you tell it is great. And the I I often Connie and I both often remark that we are the richest people on the planet. Yeah. Um. And and the huge piece of that well, I mean, first of all, of the seven and a half billion human beings on the planet, there's nobody doing anything. That I'd rather be doing than what I'm doing. Yeah. And of the two and a half million years of hominid, you know, Homo existence since Homo habilis, there's never, there's no time I'd rather be alive than now, as precarious as it is. And having Connie as my best friend, my lover, my wife, my my soulmate, my mission partner, is just truly wealth beyond measure. And so, anytime time I meet a couple that it's the, the mission, the legacy work, let's put it that way, it's the legacy work. So I just celebrate that, the two of you, and as I celebrate it with me and Connie. Yeah,
1: thank you. Thank, thank you, Michael.
0: You. So um, around this language of post-doom, some people like that language, some people love that language, um, some people like, ah, eh, it doesn't quite work for me. You know, um, I'm curious, how have you languaged for yourselves and and others um, this, this time that we live in and what's unfolding.
2: Yeah, I'm going to take a step back. Uh, w- we get a lot of media attention, which I'm really grateful for, because then we can shine a light on what's happening. And uh, apparently a couple of millennials do that. Like they want the millennial feedback. And so that's why they come to us a lot. And I'm, I'm very grateful for it. But also therein is always about climate change and i think climate change we think climate change is a symptom and the media isn't ready to hear that yet and so we have to be very careful in how we talk because we what amy and i try to do is talk about this the symptoms uh, it being a systemic problem climate change is a symptom just as racism is a symptom just as our in-grouping which leads to racism is a symptom you know all these big things that are happening at the same time are symptomatic of disconnection at large. And there's a few reasons for disconnection. We can say capitalism, um, white patriarchy, you know, we can list off a bunch of these these problems. But ultimately, these problems exist because of disconnection. Somehow we have become so disconnected that we're living in the illusion of disconnection. And that's the real problem and we're not going to solve any of the other problems or the predicament until we start to realize that we have to reconnect we have to reconnect at every level including ourselves first if we don't reconnect with ourselves and realize what our body's trying to tell us what our feelings are trying to teach us um, different emotional states how to calm our nervous system then we're not going to be of much use to the the greater predicament
0: yeah well that's that's awesome and um you reminded me in speaking One of the biggest shifts for me happened, Uh, I was very much a techno-optimist and had a linear human-centered understanding of of evolution and of history. Um, From about 2000, I was very ecologically oriented. Thomas Berry became my mentor in 1988, and Joanna Macy and Dolores LaChapelle and other major deep ecological evolutionary thinkers. But in 2000, I read several books that put me on more of a linear techno-optimist trajectory. And that didn't die until December 3rd of 2012 when I watched David Roberts' TED Talk, uh, oh, uh, yeah. Climate Change is Simple. And then a couple of years after that, I read William Catton's masterful book, Overshoot, The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change. And that's where I've really understood the difference between predicaments and you know that you, can, that you have to live with, adapt to, and problems that can be at least potentially solved. Yep. And now in my evening programs, I have a slide that shows Caton's uh, overshoot. And then the very next slide, I have like 12 different things, resource depletion, peak oil, climate change, um, global gap between the rich and the poor, blah blah, 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 the whole thing. And I say, so oftentimes we focus on these, but these are all symptoms. They're symptoms yes. of ecological overshoot. And, and I think overshoot is grounded in what you're calling disconnection, and others have well, Dar Jamel in, in his book, The End of Ice, in his interviews, talks about that. And I think, now this is something I've not even shared with anybody other than Connie, so I'm just sort of floating it out as a trial balloon to the two of you. My sense is what underlies disconnection, especially disconnection from primary reality, disconnection from the biosphere, disconnection from the ecosphere, is language. That when we use language that names primary reality as merely an it to be exploited rather than a divine vow to be honored and respected and ultimately submitted to, that we have already put ourselves on a trajectory that pretty much guarantees disconnection. It guarantees a human supremacy. It guarantees seeing other species as tools, not teachers. It, It guarantees a lot once we language primary reality as something other than primary, whatever our mythic names for that might be.
2: Well, and language puts uh, things into symbols, right? I mean, that's ultimately what language is, is a symbolic thing. And uh, part of the problem becomes when we take it literally. And I think that's what you're speaking to, is is seeing these, these real existing dynamic features or beings and trying to reduce it to a, a symbol, to a, a, a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, I hear yeah. you.
0: Yeah. Well, so, so some, some of the language that some of the folks have used in this series that I've interviewed, um, some have spoke of civilizational reboot. Uh, William Catton speaks of catabolic collapse. Actually, John Michael Greer speaks of catabolic collapse, where societies tend to—unsustainable uh, civilizations and empires basically eat themselves alive. They, they overextend what they can afford to maintain, and then they start feeding on themselves. That's why he calls it, catabolic collapse. Um, Population die-off, the extinction of Homo Colossus, obviously the sixth-grade extinction. So that's language that some folks have used. Um, So anything before we move on to having you share more of your stories, I want to hear anything about language.
1: Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you're asking and talking about this because I'm thinking of uh, Marie Howe's On Being interview and she, in it she talks about studying with a poet from the Soviet Union who said something to her class along the lines of, you Americans are so naive. You think evil's gonna come in in big black boots, but it sneaks in through the language. Watch the language. And that's huge. And when we think about what that means, what I think is more important than the language is an awareness of the language and what we're doing when we try to reach for words. Because what I think about with post-doom is it's too focused on the future when we're not even accurately seeing where we are now. Mm. And until we can see where we are now, we can't even begin to think about a future because of how wrong and sick. And so um, I guess the word that I often use is just collapse, not a precise type of collapse because I feel like that's a side distraction. Just collapse. We are seeing collapse of all kinds and different forms. And I think that word is enough for me personally. I love other people to explain why they choose the words they use because I think rather than getting stuck on that word is right or wrong, I want to know why they're saying it and what it means to them because I don't trust some of these words we just stamp on things, but that's probably the poet in me.
0: Yeah, right. I'm sure. Well, you know, I'm reminded very early on, one of the, you know, some of the major inspirations for me in terms of this series was Dar Jamel and Barbara Cecil's Truth Outposts, Um, was Jem Bendell's Deep Adaptation Paper, Catherine Ingram's "Facing Extinction" long form essay, but Catherine Catherine didn't like post doom. She really didn't. She suggested post collapse, and it was too much reminder, I think, of sort of the the uh, the doomsday diner crowd, the, the sort of the doomers, yeah. um, who have been ahead of the curve uh, more so than most of us in terms of accepting mm-hmm. what's inevitable. But also, there's often for for some in that crowd, there's there's a sort of a cynicism or a, or a um, um, cynicalism, sort of a, a almost a depressed thing. And she, she just didn't want to be associated with that. So she preferred collapse as well, post-collapse. But I agree with you, we're, we're in the midst of it now. It's not about post-anything, really, ultimately. It's like we are now living in contraction collapse. We are living in the collapse of relationships, the collapse of meaning. We're seeing the death of worldviews. Many people who've had worldviews that have given their life meaning and inspiration, they're, they're crumbling around us, and certainly the collapse of the greatest religion of the of the West, of certainly of of, of the modern world, is the 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 secular religion of perpetual progress, and yes. the collapse of that.
2: Well, and and thank God for us challenging that religion, right? I mean, yes. it, it's clearly it's led us here, it's led us astray, and it's time for something new.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Okay, so the heart of this particular series is really allowing thought leaders, teachers, uh, contributors, activists, um, to not so much share their their teaching points, although obviously we want some of that, but really to share their journey, their story, their stories. Now, you've touched on a little bit of this already, but um, uh, flesh out, if you would, uh, a little bit more in terms of How you went from now, y'all are millennials. You're young enough that you you didn't have the kind of expectations that folks who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, Joanna Macy's 90. You know, uh, those of us that are older uh, really had to adjust to the death of perpetual progress, the death of more and more, better and better, up and up. but still you have a sensitivity, especially as a young person growing up in a world where you already realized that that stuff was a myth. So anything you'd like to share either of you independently or together um, uh, in terms of that journey, that process.
1: I would love to speak to that. I was a pageant kid. Uh, so I very much still grew up with image, expectation, work hard, uh, make money. American dream. My, my family still believes in the American dream when I go talk to my parents. Uh, sure. And that, that's hard. <laughs> that's hard to grow up with that and then to realize everything you thought was true. It's not so much that everything I thought was true isn't. It's that everything that felt so secure and certain never was certain to begin with. Yes. It was present, We were told that if you follow these rules and fit into these boxes, you will be successful. And that's just simply not true. And so that caused, and uh, mixed with my depression, I was prone to a lot of depression because I also didn't feel I fit in this world. That turned out to be a really fruitful place to be. And it encouraged me to take a year off in between my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree. I lived with retired Catholic nuns for a year. My my roommates were 79 to 100 years old.
0: Wow, And
1: and they gifted me time and space. I was supposed to be writing a book about spirituality and depression at 23 years old. Realized I had such a shift in myself that I didn't even know who was writing the book anymore. And I feel like that's really when the seed was planted that I started reading some of the mystics. I started Mm -hmm. contemplating on this deeper reality beyond the everyday. And that is what has led me to this work. That's what makes me come alive. It's the, as you mentioned, it's the only work I want to be doing. I I don't even know that I'm capable anymore of going back to the old paradigm because I get depressed and don't see the point. And so I'm going to, you bet I'm going to give it all I've got in this paradigm because I believe in it and I think it's worth fighting for. So that's really the key elements of, of my journey. And thank you for letting me
2: share that.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you.
2: So Amy and I often talk about our path and how we got to be here and and sort of what woke us up. And I think from the get-go, I knew that this culture was shit. (laughs) You know, it just wasn't serving me. It never served me. I never fit in. I was always like, we didn't have money. Um, My parents were abusive and alcoholics, uh, had tremendous trauma. And then in addition to that, experienced a lot of loss. I had a lot of deaths surrounding my younger years. And so you put all that together and of course, I'm not going to fit into this paradigm. You know, it just never made any sense that I would try to force myself into something that so badly didn't want me there. Uh, and so if I don't fit into the paradigm that everybody else does, I had to etch my own. And. I did start trying to do something like wildlife management and um, you know maybe I wanted to work at a zoo and animal rehabilitation or something like mm-hmm. that. And then realized that really the animal problem isn't an animal problem, it's a human problem. How are we managing ourselves? How are we managing our population? What are we doing with our resources? And so that's really my entry point is realizing that the, the world has always been unstable for me. It's never been a safe place. And part of what I'm having to grieve is the idea, like what Amy was talking about, where I put myself through school, put myself through undergrad, put myself through graduate school, and if I did all the right things, like can life finally be easy? And then you realize that no, it's not. It's not easy, it's a constant struggle. And yet we have a choice in how we approach that struggle. We have a choice in how we show up in our world. And I choose to show up to be a force of good and a force of trying to open other people's hearts and trying to not come from that Desperately broken place that I that I was formed into, you know, we we have the choices and now we just have to Learn how to intelligently and by intelligence. I mean with our brains and our hearts and our guts not just with our brains uh, But how we intelligently make our decisions and how we show up and how we treat each other as human beings and then how we extend that to the natural world
0: yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, you mentioned uh, alcoholism in your family. I'm curious, uh, did you find 12-step helpful at all? I've been involved in 12-step for 30 years, that's why I ask, uh, and was that in any way, uh, were you able to uh, make use of any parts of that model in the formation of your your nine and then 10-step?
2: Most definitely. Yes and yes. <laughs> uh, so, I don't remember how old I was, but it was probably early to mid-twenties, and I went to an Al-Anon group, more specifically adult children of alcoholics. And I learned so much there that I didn't even have words for. So the first thing I learned was the importance of ritual. Like, you show up at the same time every week, you read the same intro, generally speaking, you'll see the same faces. Uh, And then it closes the same way. So it becomes this container for safety. You know what to expect. You know what you're going into. And the second thing that really moved me is that you can start a conversation at a different place. You're not strangers on the street. You are there for a very specific reason. Uh, You're there because... like me, the other people in the meetings have had fucked up childhoods. And so what do you do with that information? You get to start the conversation here instead of here. And so those are two really key aspects that we have borrowed from AA or Al-Anon that have really served us. It's about creating that safe container and that safe space, but also starting the conversation at a different level. Um, In addition to that, Adult Children of Alcoholics showed me tremendous love Uh, like love I had not seen before from adults. And as a 20-something, also experiencing tremendous depression, um, not having parents to fall back on to teach me the essential life skills that one might need. uh, These two older women in particular really took me under their wing and just gave me constant hugs and told me how proud they were that I was doing this process work so early and that they didn't even realize they had problems till their 40s. And I was like, I can't wait till I'm 40. I don't even know how to live right now. So, yes, AA and Al-Anon and the 12-step models are, are directly correlated uh, to what we do now, and I am so grateful, and we try to cite them as much as possible because they save lives. They teach yeah. people how to live. It's a spiritual program, um, which some people have some trouble with, the spirituality problem, but we, we feel like we took some of the best aspects of those programs and really put it into ours. I'm
0: absolutely thrilled that, that you've embodied really um, some of the real wisdom of, of, uh, of that stuff in, in, your, in your Good Grief Network.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
0: So um, many people find inspiration obviously in the details and in the present moment, in the now, but many of us have also found the universe story or epic of evolution or big history, or green history, to be uh, inspiring as well. And I'm just curious, has this big picture um, informed or inspired you in in any way?
1: For me, yes. I was just telling Laura, actually, that I had a really hard time as a child when I learned the sun was going to burn out. It caused quite an existential crisis (laughs) in young Amy. And interestingly enough, now that's actually a source of comfort being reminded that we were never guaranteed much along the way, right? We just get to, we get to be here now and we don't really know why, but like, I sure want to make the most of it and, and appreciate and treasure this gift and love as best as I can. Cause that feels like the best thing we can do while we're here. And so thinking about things like the sun burning out and big time is really helpful and like also really helps me to laugh at myself you know i just take myself so seriously sometimes that occasionally i need a reminder of like you are a speck of dust here for a short time enjoy the ride will you and so i I love that question and i think about deep time quite a bit and i it excites me
0: (laughs) that's great well you know uh, before you answer laura i just uh, i had a thought that i have not had in quite a while some dear friends of ours, uh, Joel Primick and Nancy Ellen Abrams, uh, he's the guy that discovered dark matter. He basically worked out the wow. mathematics for dark matter. Wow. And he's one of the leading cosmologists in the world, Joel Primick. He said, if you're an optimist or if you're a positive person, you can say, we are made of stardust. And it's true. We are made of stardust. But you can, if you're a negative person or a curmudgeon or whatever, you can say, we're just the nuclear waste of dead stars. <laughs> So yeah. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that in, in actually some years. So I don't know what it was what it was with you. New- I love it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I find a lot of solace in evolution and life and uh, biophilia and the idea that life really is trying to express itself in a variety of ways. You know, all the extant species that exist right now, we're just one of them. Uh, We live amongst so many other critters of different colors and sounds and sizes, and I find a lot of beauty and solace there. We're just one. We're just one of the wonderful beings that exist. And I find a lot of comfort in the idea that it's, it's kind of what Amy was saying about being so small, you know, and I like to just focus on the earth because, uh, there's so much beauty and meaning here. Uh, and Amy really likes to go cosmic. Amy's really big. And so oftentimes we'll, uh, you know, we watch a lot of TV shows, like, our planet, and um, what are some of the other ones? Uh, one Strange Rock, yes. we like that one. It's, yeah. it's amazing because it offers that perspective of both the like bigger world and galaxies and universe, but it also brings it home into this little tiny region where we exist for this very short amount of time. Uh, and I think it just begs humility and as as we were saying at the beginning of our conversation you mentioned something about human supremacy like it really just knocks that idea down you know it puts it down into perspective like we just happen to be alive at the same time that all these other wonderful creatures that we're unfortunately driving to extinction are um but for this moment we still get to see them and we still get to see the variety of color and iridescence like what a magical gift it's beautiful
0: so With respect to time, in addition to sort of this big-picture evolutionary uh, perspective, um, many of us have had to restory the past as well as the future. And I'm just curious, uh, do the two of you have a sense, I mean, again, obviously recognizing you don't speak with one voice, you may have different perspectives on this, but do you have a sense of inevitability, like things just inevitably were going to flow this way, that any, you know, tool-making, symbolic-using animal would probably do this? Um, Or do you have a sense that there's something uniquely flawed about humans? Uh, And and also, do you have a sense of if-onlys? Like, if only we hadn't done this, or if we only hadn't taken this trajectory, or whatever. So I'm curious how you interpret the past.
2: So years ago in undergrad, uh, when I was starting to take my environmental studies courses, I really focused in on the Industrial Revolution. And I used to think, if we just had a time machine, that could go back to right before the industrial revolution and say like, hey, don't burn all these fossil fuels. Don't do the this. And then I realized that that's sort of the wrong question as well. Um, we have been creating destruction in many ways long before then. Um, and part of it has to do with patriarchy and part of it has to do with something that that the three of us have had a conversation about before, and it's just the idea that we are a species, and we're trying to do our damnedest to stay alive. And some of this harkens back to Daniel Quinn and Ishmael and his discussion about how we store food and the ideas behind storing food. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it just seems like I, I don't want to use the word inevitable. I think that's too strong mm-hmm. um, because I think there could be many different paths and uh, basically that begs the question of humility and so what i will say is that we're a species and we found a way to really thrive we found multiple ways we've built houses we have uh, stored food we figured out how to grow food fast you know all of our needs in the maslow's hierarchy of needs we've done a pretty good job at at securing them uh, for the people with means and so and those people get to make the laws and the decisions and so whether or not it's inevitable I don't know, but I do know that what we were trying to do is be a biological organism that is outsmarting our surroundings, and, and we've done great up until, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, it's just like any, anything in ecology tells you that nothing can grow exponentially. Nothing. It goes in cycles. It goes in waves. You get to a point, a population of animals gets to a point and then it crashes and then it grows again and it gets to a point and it crashes. And we are not above those laws. So that's my quick answer. And
1: Yeah. And I think you said this last time, Michael, about how maybe this is what any species would do if they were given the kind of tools we've created. We've created these tools that are bigger than us. And so I almost think it's too easy to think that humans are just messed up or uh, somehow inherently flawed, somehow a mistake of nature. I I think that's too easy. And some people might say it doesn't feel easy because it's not a good place to be feeling those things. But I I think it's important to feel, it's okay to feel that grief and like, wow, we've really messed up. But then it's about what you do with that and not getting stuck there. And so, I personally believe that if humans know how to do better, we will do better, but that we've gotten enslaved to these cultural ideas and we just are too comfortable to question them. And what I think we're going to see is as the storms increase, as people's comfort decreases, They're going to be reaching for new worldviews and I sure hope we're helping bring in a new lifestyle and a new paradigm that says Not only are you not you're not going to feel like you're wanting in this paradigm, you're not going to feel like you're giving stuff up, even though you will be living more simply, but what you gain For doing that makes it well worth it and you will be living a rich life. It just doesn't look like what you were taught to want when you were younger.
0: Yes, amen. Well, I I think how we measure wealth is huge. Um, Communities have always known that true wealth, real wealth, genuine wealth is all about connection, relationship, music, play, uh, uh, heartful communication, a sense of security that's not in things but in relationships.
2: Well, and and one more thing that I wanted to bring into the conversation, too, is uh, how young our species is. You know, we're babies and we're going through a really uncomfortable, uh, maybe birthright sounds too strong, but... uh, Growing pains learning a passage yeah. right of passage. That's yeah. what I was looking for. And I think it's absolutely essential that we realize at First, most people who are participating in in this video who will be watching this video probably have come to terms with the fact that uh, the people in power write history. So the history that we've been fed is flawed, inherently flawed. How many stories are we missing? Uh, and so this isn't inevitable. It's not inevitable that we progress this certain way. There were many other cultures, uh, many of which have been extinguished because of uh, the patriarchy and, and the domination of of white cultures. And so... I think it's it's this beautiful beautiful opportunity um, to, to build the world that Charles Eisenstein says, you know, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Like, we can't just throw that out the window. We can't just throw the idea of another culture uh, as being like fairy tale or dreamland. Like, other cultures have existed. They still exist now. We are just one very interconnected culture that is... Uh, progress driven, as we talked about earlier, um, you know, we, we value wealth more than we value a lot of the other things. It, that's only one way. You know, there are many ways to exist on the planet. There are many ways to be a human being. What we're seeing is the breakdown of one way.
0: Yeah.
2: And it's a way that's not actually even serving us.
0: Yeah. I mean, this kind of human centeredness is short term. It's self-destructive yeah. inherently. Yep. Yeah. You know, going back to uh, what we were talking about ten or fifteen minutes ago, it, it occurs to me that um, there's nothing wrong with celebrating human uniqueness and the fact that we are a special species. However, if we don't simultaneously celebrate the unique giftedness, like Every other species is the best of the best in something. And if we don't don't honor that, then it comes, we get into hubris, we get into arrogance, and that's the downfall. I I love John Michael Greer is where I first heard it, but I think it actually traces back to the Greeks. Um, uh, The definition of hubris, the overweening pride of the doomed.
2: Hmm. (laughs) The
0: overweening pride of the doomed. Well, yeah. On this topic that we touched on just briefly earlier, impermanence and death. So how have you found in your work and in your own lives, your own psyches, um, holding impermanence and death as natural, sacred, inevitable, um, as as a part of the body of life, a part of the way things are, um, how has that um, supported you?
2: So, our step four is about honoring our mortality and the mortality of all. And this step is specifically connected to death anxiety and terror management theory, uh, which Amy and I have had the privilege of studying. Um, Amy studied under a professor who is in the documentary, Flight from Death, and um, I've read some Ernest Becker, and it's the idea that if we, like, it's inevitable that we understand that we're going to die. Now, whether we keep that repressed, in the the other parts of our brain, or we bring it to consciousness, is our choice, and that choice determines how we manifest uh, our death anxiety. And so, there are healthy ways to manifest our death anxieties, and there are ways uh, that we're seeing in the world right now with this peaked tribalism and this really uh, fearful way that we're looking at the other. You know, we can see it in the immigration issues happening in our country right now, and how. Um, Trump is really stoking the fears of people saying they're other be afraid of them. They're scared. That's just death anxiety And once you can understand that we're gonna die and hold some space for that and really Really come to terms for that to it If you can really come to terms with the fact that everything, you know and love will die That begs humility it and it begs living in the moment We have to be present right here and now because there is no other time it's as if uh, people who want to deny death think we can buy certainty or we can guarantee certainty. I mean, Michael, it's very possible that as soon as we end this phone call, I can get in my car and get in a car accident and die. And then we, I will never know how this predicament goes forward. You know, like, why are we so focused on this end goal of... of um, collapse and how we're all going to die and whether our species is going to go extinct if we don't know what the rest of today is going to look like you know our acceptance of death means that our life is inherently finite and because our life is inherently finite we have to live in the moment we have to build connections right here we have to find beauty and meaning right now because there is no other time
0: it's interesting my my take on death uh, um, has largely been shaped by a more sort of indigenous earth-oriented perspective as well as science, uh, because death is essential at all scales of the universe. In indigenous tribal cultures, cultures that live sustainably, their sense of death was not only so natural and, and effortless that when you died, you became an ancestor. You weren't gone, you became an ancestor that was consulted in the imagination and in the conversation of the, of the the community. And there was that sense of continuity with time, both the ancestors and the descendants. I mean, that whole notion of acting in the present with the seventh generation in mind isn't just a good idea to do otherwise is evil. And, and, and indigenous cultures knew that. So that gives us a very different relationship to mortality when we recognize that and have a personal relationship to the past and to the future, our ancestors and our descendants.
2: Well, in, in Roy Scranton, his essay, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I read his, I think it was a New York Times piece um, yes. right before the book was published. And he was talking about how in the military, he had to actively say, like, I'm dead already. Like, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm committed to it. And then you go out and do your your thing because there's a freedom that comes when you're not being so oppressed by your own fear of death and he basically likens it to our predicament now. Like, can we already say we're already dead and that sort of frees us up to do what we need to do while we're actually alive?
0: Yes, Uh, and I too was touched by that section in his essay and the book where he speaks about having already died in his imagination uh, during the wartime.
1: I just wanted to add also, um, I think we said that, but we didn't maybe emphasize that the death anxiety step came after we ran through the nine steps first. And it's because it was this elephant in the room, right? It was so clear that everything related to climate and systems collapse stirs our death anxiety. And until we actually can look at that and not only look at it, but uh, make peace with it, find a reverence there, a, a appreciation, until we do that, uh, it's, it's gonna have its way with us basically. Like we can, yeah. we can own it and integrate it or we can let it control us in a neurotic sort of way.
2: And I think experiencing depression, both of us have had tremendous depression and depression brings you right to the brink of death, you know, and so if you don't find something to live for, if you don't find a comfort with that darkness and realize that it has something to teach you, then you've lost that lesson. And, and for like, I, I, um, I have been more comfortable with death than I have with life than with embracing life and, and the fullness of life. And it's because I, I've had tremendous loss. I've had two of my best friends die in high school. Uh, and so that brings you really close to death as well. And experiencing your best friend going through depression when she wants to die, that's another death. And, and so, you know, we're relatively young, but our experiences are rich and, and we've been there. We've been to that place that says, oh, death is just right here, why, why are you alive? What's the point of being alive? Where's the richness, where's the beauty? where's the fruit of life, you
0: know? Mm. Yeah, that's great. Well said. Thank you. Wow, this is rich. <laughs> so um, in terms of, uh, we mentioned before, you all mentioned before grief and, and you know, the stages of grief, the classic the rasa stages. Um, and for many of us, certainly in this series, we found uh, what Paul Traferker calls finding the gift. We found the gift on the other side of the post-doomed doorway. And I'm wondering if either, or both of you would like to speak to that. What, what, what's yes. opened up for you on the other side?
2: This is where we work. This yeah. question is is where we dwell with our with the people who participate in good grief. And I've answered a lot of questions, so I want to open it up to you. For yeah. um, thank you. Uh, I,
1: as always, I have so many things going on. You're like, oh, where's the end? Because I do love this question. It's where we live. It's feel. I feel like it's why I live, and that is the joy and the. Grace that I get to witness every day doing this work and working with everything that scares most people Has freed me. I feel a freedom in my life that I never felt when I was working odd jobs and um, you know, just trying to pay my bills. I we still struggle with that stuff and Like you said, I feel like we're living a, a, a Very wealthy life in the fact that we have time to sit and talk about these things that we get to not only tell people it's okay to feel hard things i get to sit there and feel it with them i get to i get to cry with people i get to i get to do hard things that also have a a healing quality about them and then it stops being so scary when you get to actually live your fears and live them in a way that shows me grace every day I can't imagine doing anything else. I see no other reason to to be on this planet if I'm not loving it. And this is how I love life. And I I am so grateful, especially as someone who's had suicidal depression multiple times throughout my 20s, uh, to be able to say that I love life. I love my life in particular, but I love all life. And that's why we do this work. That's why we want to change minds. That's why we want to change hearts. And in doing so, hopefully, life still has a fighting chance in our species.
0: Yeah. Wow. I'd love to uh, conclude this conversation with really you sharing each of the 10 steps and what it is that you're trying to do and what it is that people typically experience at that.
2: So the first thing I want to say is that what the Good Grief Network does is creates small peer-to-peer groups. Uh, so Amy and I are not therapists. We try to make it very clear from the get-go that we are human beings having a human experience and we'll bring that experience to the table just like you should bring your experience to the table. Um, and we can speak from that place of experience because our sp- it, it's our own, it's all we know. I mean, it's the only concrete thing it, and it's not even concrete. It's the only thing we have though. So that being said, we work one step a week. We have 10 of them, and the transformation that happens between step one and step 10 is so amazing, and it's what keeps me and Amy doing this work. Uh, We prioritize small groups, so we like to cap it at about 15 people. Uh, We recommend that other people starting these groups also cap it at about 15 people because then there's an intimacy there. There's a safety that's being created. Mm -hmm. And so we sit in a circle. Uh, Amy and I facilitate digitally as well, so often it's not a real circle. It's much more like this Zoom call and we go through one step the first step is about accepting the severity of the problem and what we do is we realize that people are in different positions with accepting the severity of the problem and what we don't want to do is tell them how to think or where to be in that, you know, people can read whatever they want, people can bring their experiences, but they are not allowed to rant or tell me how I'm supposed to think about this situation. And that's a, such a tough step for people to come in on. Oh, where yeah. are you at with ecological collapse? Like where, where are you, how are you doing with that? Uh, so we just invite sharing, where are you coming from? What are your perspectives? What happens in step one is everybody's scared, we're feeling so isolated, and the fear really takes a toll on our nervous system. It takes a toll on how we show up, how we spend our days. And then you know we start working through our inner stuff, which are the first few steps. Second step is about acknowledging our problem in it how are we part of the problem, but also we're part of the solution. And we know there is no solution, but basically the idea is that we can wake people up. We can empower people to make a difference in the world. And while there is no one solution to this predicament, there sure is opportunity for us to be brave and to be courageous and to show up and to develop more authentic relationships. Uh, and for us right now, i um, shouldn't speak for Amy, for me, that's the solution, is authentic connection. Yeah. Um, and so the second step is really about owning uh, the fact that I, can, I still drive a car. Amy and I are moving next week to Tucson, Arizona from Nebraska, we're gonna be driving, that requires fossil fuels. That's part of what we're trying to fight against, you know. but we're still part of the system. And so can we not use the system's tools to also like, reach other people and start to help wake them up and help build resilience in other people?
1: Well, and that step about acknowledging our part in the problem, a lot of people say, well, we're taking the guilt on for corporations. And it's quite the opposite, because when we've heard this story from many of our activist friends of how many times oil companies say to them, did you drive to this protest today? Then leave us alone. Stop criticizing us when you own that, yes, I did drive today because I'm a part of the system that we've created and the system's no longer working and we want accountability, that is a new level of power that you can't be shut down or gaslighted in that way. Yes, exactly. And so it's really, this step is about empowerment. And when we own our part in the problem, it's not getting stuck there. It's just that we've been, cre- we've been presented with impossible choices. And the sooner that we own that and stop feeling guilt about these impossible choices we're forced to make, it frees up some emotional space for work elsewhere.
0: Oh, thank you so much for mentioning that too, because it also takes the ammo away from those that would try to point out Mm -hmm. our our hypocrisy. Yeah,
2: Yeah, Yeah. it's true. Well, and and sometimes we just need that. Uh, Derek Jensen does a great job in his essay, Forget Shorter Showers. Uh, that's one of our readings that we recommend for our participants, because it's so essential that we have to stop putting 100% of the responsibility on us when there are systemic problems. Like We we can make all the right decisions and still this, these problems don't go away, you know. and that points to the systemic nature of the problems, of no, the predicament.
0: Right. Thomas Berry used to say, I drove a car here to tell you how bad cars are.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true, it's yeah. true. Uh, And then we move into step three, which is all about practice being with uncertainty and this whole conversation that the three of us have been engaging in is about that exact thing. We're Never in life has anything been certain. We've just been fed the illusion that we have certainty, and we, we're so desperate for it that we grab onto that illusion and we like hug it so tightly until you realize that it doesn't serve you. It doesn't serve a dynamic world to be so rigid. And so in this step, we often talk about uh, letting go of your expect, uh, expected outcome. Letting go of your expected outcome is essential for what we're going to be facing in the future and what's already here now we just have to let go. We have to move, roll with the punches. Isn't that things people say? (laughs) Uh, The next one is that mortality step we talked about, um, honoring our mortality and the mortality of all. And actually, Michael, you helped us come to the word honor, because before we were using the word confront mortality. Mm. And it was you who said, that's an interesting choice of words. And we said, you're right, we're going to look at that. And uh, honoring it, it seems so more so much more appropriate. That's what we need to be doing is seeing it as our friend, seeing it as a teacher, seeing it as a guide, instead of confronting it. uh, It's not an adversary, it's a guide. Um, And that's a, everyone loves that step. They don't. They don't. don't. (laughs) Uh, But it is right after that step that we start to see a shift in our groups. The groups then become more open, they're more willing to share from their heart space. Uh, The first few groups are just trying to get oriented to a room full of strangers while we're all asking to sink into this place of authenticity. And um, Step five is about doing inner work. And inner work means a lot of things to us. One, it means clear up all the trauma from your past. If you're alive right now, you have trauma. You're carrying some sort of trauma. And I don't know how deep it goes. Perhaps it's very deep, perhaps it's not. But take a look at it, you know, make it so it's not these bags that you're carrying around with you. And then the second part of this step is about uh, embracing our full range of feelings. Uh, It's so essential, like, let me try again. This culture, always promotes happiness. It, as if that's the only feeling we're allowed to feel. And we all know that that's not the only feeling we have. In fact, we're so complex. We have a full range of feelings. And what we know from psychology is if we mute the painful feelings, if we refuse to look at our grief or our rage, we also mute the ones that we so desperately wanna feel. We mute our grief, we mute the love, we mute our capacity to show up as full human beings. And a lot of the this feelings talk that I'm, I'm talking about right now is based on the work of Brene Brown and how she talks about showing up and what it means to show up and how we need to really dig into the grit of our feelings in order to show up fully. So those are the first five. Amy will go through the other ones. Step six is one of my
1: favorites. It's develop awareness of brain patterns and perceptions. And I call it the permission to be wrong step. Because the more I learned about my brain and how it functions, the more you're, I was mind blown at the idea that I ever felt like I didn't have permission to be wrong. I thought it. if I was wrong, it felt embarrassing. There was shame associated with it our brains are magnificent, but they take a ton of shortcuts. And this step is really about learning how once we begin to recognize those shortcuts our brains take, it gets a little easier to recognize your biases and uh, understand when you're bypassing something or, you know, taking the easy way out of feeling something. And it just really helped me develop deeper self-compassion through intellectualism, which isn't something you hear about a lot. Yeah, uh, that's great. Brain science excites me. <laughs> and so following brain science is our gratitude step, practice gratitude. And that's because it we've talked about how gratitude actually takes us to a different part of the brain. And we're trying to put the grit back in gratitude with this step. I, there's this new cultural excitement about gratitude and I think that's really fantastic. I don't wanna sound like I'm Uh, making fun of that, but it also is presenting it as if it's all rainbows and butterflies all the time and that that's what gratitude is. And I think that's wholly unbalanced and takes away the power and the grit of gratitude. And so I give the example of when I was in a major depression and my therapist told me to write a gratitude list, it just turned into a shame storm of everything I should feel grateful for, but couldn't actually feel the gratitude. Mm. The real revolutionary shift happened when I gave myself permission to stop writing things I was supposed to feel grateful for. And what were things in that moment I could actually feel grateful for? The pen that allowed me to write symbols on a page that I could look back on later, the bird singing in the tree near me, it became a much more immediate practice. And that's when I started to feel this shift, this brain shift that they talk about with gratitude. Mm.
2: Well, and I feel like we also need to enter into this step a discussion about beauty and meaning and how those are resilience tools available to us at all times. Uh, we we borrowed from Viktor Frankl from this and his book about man's search for meaning. And In it, he essentially says, our external circumstances can change and look really dark, but no matter what happens, we have some agency in how we respond and how we show up. And Beauty can be found anywhere, even in the darkest of places, and we're already seeing suffering now, and we will continue to see suffering unfold before us. And if we don't know how to train our brains to look for beauty and to create meaning, that's such an easy, simple way to hold resilience in our hands, to have this arsenal of, of power um, that no one else can take away. People can take away a lot of things from us. Situations can take away a lot of things from us, but they can't take away our capacity for for finding beauty and creating meaning.
0: Yeah, beautiful.
2: Mm -hmm. Step eight, take breaks and rest.
1: And we had to create a step about this, and it's often one of the hardest steps for people.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You'd think it's easy, but it's so anti-capitalist, anti-rat race, anti-everything we were taught.
0: It's un-American. It's (laughs) un-American. It is.
1: It (laughs) is. You're right. And so we've
2: created a step for it, and it's an important step. Well, and the idea that we we have to take breaks, we have to learn when our bodies need rest. And what we try to tell our participants, the people going through our program, is this work will be here when you're done resting. It's not like it's going to go away. In fact, if you push yourself to burnout, you are of no use moving forward. And so really dig in, take care of yourself, take that break, and then come back when you're restored. Because otherwise, you're doing a disservice to yourself and then to your community as well. Step
1: nine is show up. That comes after take breaks for a reason, because sometimes show up means show up for yourself and not a literal show up someplace. Mm-hmm. And we want folks to know the difference when we come to the step, show up. And. S- Showing up also means showing up authentically as we were discussing earlier about authenticity and in order for me to show up authentically. Sometimes that means I don't show up at events because I don't feel up to it and we want to create space where that's okay too. And last but not least, step 10 reinvest into meaningful efforts. It used to be take action and we decided that was too. Too specific to came with expectations, reinvest into meaningful efforts can be whatever people make of it. And we've seen such a variety of responses after people work our 10 steps. Some of them say, I want to quit my job and go get arrested with Extinction Rebellion and be an activist for a year and then go back into the workforce. But I don't see any other way to exist in this world. And we honor that and we support that. Some say, I've been doing too much activist work. I want to be more present as a parent. I'm actually going to reduce the number of activities I'm saying yes to. Um, We had a a lawyer uh, who was taking a break from practicing law because she was burned out. And then after she worked our steps, said, I'm I'm reinstating my bar. I'm going to go work on immigration issues. And so this is really about a step where we ask people, uh, I really love the Howard Thurman quote about uh, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do that because the world needs people who've come alive. And we believe that with our whole hearts. And that's what this step is about, getting people to that place where their passion meets their
2: skill set and their ability. So we have these 10 meetings and throughout these 10 meetings with 15 or fewer people, we really get a chance to see everyone. And and what's interesting is oftentimes I don't actually know what people do for a living. They come into our group and we have such heart-centered conversation that I don't know how they spend their day to day. I know where their heart is and I know how they're showing up and I know their fears, but I don't know how they spend, I, I don't know how, what they do for a profession. And to me, that's, It's so interesting because that's one of the first questions we ask as a culture is like, what do you do as if that defines us. And so we've created a program where oftentimes we'll get to step 10 and and our friend will say, I'm actually a lawyer and we're like, huh. I didn't even know we that. had no idea <laughs> that's great that's great um, but but the shift that happens is just of infinite love between the people who participate in the group and amy and i have now done about 10 groups so we have a pretty big sample size and we have branches shooting off in, in a lot of places um, we're excited because one's going to be starting in australia soon we have one in the bay san francisco bay area Uh, We have one up in Vermont, uh, perhaps one over in British Columbia, and so what we're seeing is people really wanting to start these small groups, because what we're trying to tell people is you don't have to be an expert. You have to have an open heart, and you have to be patient, and you have to be in the position to not know the answer. And then from that, the group dynamic leads itself. You know, we'll give you a little script as as they do in AA or Al-Anon to keep the group going and to keep it focused. But ultimately what emerges in the discussion between open-hearted people is beyond words. You have to feel it, you have to experience it. And then what happens after those 10 steps, people either want to redo the steps because it's kind of like Joanna Macy's The Work That Reconnects, it's a spiral. Every time you come, you're in a different position. And so we invite some people to come and and do the steps again. Uh, We remind them to take these steps as tools moving forward. Be reminded that you have to practice sitting with uncertainty. Be reminded about your friendship with death. Be reminded to do your inner work. And then what we see is that people are more alive, and they're more heart-centered. And the most important thing is that they realize they're not alone anymore and that that the culture is the crazy one and not us for waking up to realizing we don't want to participate in this rat race anymore. We don't want to be a part of this destruction and oftentimes if we wake up and tell our spouse that or our best friend or our coworkers, they think we're insane. And so we find a bunch of people who feel like they are insane and that they're the weird ones. And then we empower them to empower other people to help wake up and to sustain themselves and amy likes to say this a lot she says if you're not grieving right now i'm grieving for you because that means you're not awake and you're not paying attention to what's happening
0: wow that's awesome if
2: anyone is not grieving
1: i grieve for them because it means they're either a not paying attention or be in such denial that they're hurting themselves and others unknowingly and accidentally because they're participating in this sick society. And so I, my heart grieves a lot, and I see that grief that I feel as a gift yeah. because it reminds me that I'm still, still alive and still love the world enough to feel the grief
0: yeah. Amen. of
1: being alive today.
0: Thank you for listening. For the videos of all 75 of my post-Doom conversations, as well as other post-Doom resources, visit postdoom.com.